Hi, I'm Sian Xiao, a healthcare researcher. And I'm Sammy Winemaker, a palliative care doctor. If you or someone you know is facing a serious illness, you've probably spent many hours in waiting rooms, scared and not sure what to expect. We can help. Together, we've heard from thousands of patients and families dealing with serious illness. Our goal is to share what we've learned so you can be more prepared and in control. This is the Waiting Room Revolution, and it starts right now. Welcome back. It's Sien and Sammy again, and we are very excited to get into our first key for the Waiting Room Revolution. The first key is called Walk Two Roads. This key is one of the the things that we see really allows people to move from being reactive to proactive and feeling unprepared to being more prepared and in control of their experience. But it's also one of the hardest things to do. Okay, Sammy, how would you explain what walking two roads means? Walking two roads means that you simultaneously entertain the road of hoping for the best and being positive while at the same time seeking realistic information and truth that will help you plan for if things don't go your way, or if things don't go as expected, or if things go sideways, or worst case scenarios. So it's this ability to balance both positivity and planning. But you can only plan if you know what to plan for. And that's the part that's usually missing. It's the ability to seek out and access real factual information so that your hope actually matches what you're planning for. Walk to Roads is one of the most important keys because it's this idea of realizing that uh, you don't have to give up hope, that you can hope for the best, but also prepare for different outcomes. And those two things can coexist. Sammy, walk us through a typical story right after someone gets diagnosed. What is their thought process and why is it so hard to walk two roads right from the beginning? In the very early stages after someone is first diagnosed, they may not know what type of illness they have with respect to whether or not this is an illness that can be curable or is this an illness that I'll have forever but it'll just be stable or will it progress and get worse over time? Or is it something that's actually going to be life-limiting over time? So without really knowing the overarching nature or the gravity of the illness, a person really doesn't know what to plan for. And it's our natural instinct just to want to hope for the best and hope there's a treatment, hope that they were misdiagnosed. Um, These are the early kinds of optimistic hopes that naturally we use as probably a coping mechanism. And there's this assumption that, you know, unless I'm told otherwise by my very smart, compassionate, wonderful doctor, I'm only going to hope for the best. Because if there was something to plan for the worst case scenario, I think they would tell me. The problem is, is that the medical profession is quite uncomfortable having realistic discussions about what they would think is the negative side of an illness. So they tend to focus on action-oriented, day-to-day 
acute things that are treatable, fixable, um, action items like offer tests and um, treatments and things like that, um, because they wouldn't know what to do if they couldn't do that. That's how they're trained. Yeah, I agree. So part of it is that doctors don't want to give up and want to take action and give treatment. And frankly, we live in a death-denying society. But don't you think there's another part of it that is also about false cheerleading and that we're sending the wrong signal sometimes? So there is this tendency to overly focus on hoping for the best and offering treatments and shying away from the difficult conversations about what would happen if things didn't go in a positive way. Even if they know over time, that's the direction things are going to go. So they become these uber cheerleaders, just cheerleading for their patients in the form of offering uh, different things. And the patients and families go along with that because, quite frankly, that feels good, especially at the beginning. It feels great. And so down the road, in the more advanced stages of the illness, or the very end of the illness, which is when I meet people, I often meet people who feel betrayed. They feel betrayed because the whole time they were convinced to be positive and fight. And then at the very end, when it is so clearly obvious that things have declined, there is this point in time where the doctor may finally say, there's nothing more I can do for you. And it's like, what? You're kidding me. We were just in the middle of this battle. We were just fighting together. What happened? You and me, doctor, we were fighting this battle. And now suddenly there's nothing you can do for me? Well, might you have told me that a long time ago, like two years ago when I first got this diagnosis? You made me believe there was always a test and always a treatment available around the corner. And I have been putting on a brave face and a smile this whole time, even though I sort of started thinking something was going wrong. And my family's cheerleading too. Everyone's cheerleading and so am I. But yet I've had a lot of questions I dare not ask because I was never invited to ask. And so I never walked that other road. I only stayed positive. And now I'm scuppered because I'm near the end and I've made a ton of decisions not really knowing the reality of my situation. You said something really interesting in there about the fight metaphor. And I think one of the big assumptions that people have is that if they're not fighting, if they're not battling this, if they're not staying positive, then they're giving up. Then they're letting down all those people who care, who care about them. Then all those people who are praying for them, all those people who, who are hoping that they can pull through. So I think that there's, that's, I think that's a false dichotomy that you can try to get treatments and fight this, but you can also think about and prepare for what if things don't quite go as expected. If they don't entertain the reality of the illness and seek the truth and plan for the scenario to go different ways, then a code of silence happens between the patient and their family or the family and the healthcare provider or the patient and the healthcare provider. And then ultimately, this will fuel fear and anxiety and create ultimate crises. The other problem is, is that their hope will get stuck in an unrealistic stage. So hope is 
something that evolves over time. In fact, a person can remain hopeful until the very end, even right before they die. But hope does change, like the colors of a rainbow. At the beginning, they may hope for a cure, and then later hope for a treatment, later hope that the treatment works, later they may hope for more treatment and more treatment, and eventually hope evolves, and they may hope for no pain, few symptoms. Over time, they may hope that they can stay at home to be cared for, that their family remains well and strong through their illness. They then may hope less for themselves and more for their family to be well once they pass away. But you can see that there are different focuses of hope, but it does change as the illness change. And that can only happen if a person is in tune with the reality of their illness. So one of the issues with staying on only the road of hope is that your hope will get stuck in the wrong chapter and be mismatched to where you are physically in your illness journey. So what I think I want to say to the listeners is that there is this belief that um, that by thinking about this other road, this road of different uh, this road of different outcomes, it means we're taking away hope, you're giving up hope. But that is not true. Hope evolves, and we're cha- and what you hope for changes over time as your illness progresses. And so we're actually talking about a realistic hope, one that is uh, honest and is realistic. That is actually something that people can, patients and families can ground themselves in, and that actually allows them more control and more choices, and allows them to prepare for what's coming ahead. It reminds me of being able to have tough love sometimes. So we want to love someone with an open heart, but at times we have to have tough love. So we love and we tough love. We love and we tough love. So it's sort of the same thing. We toggle back and forth from hoping for the best, but planning for the worst. Hoping for the best, planning for the worst. So the idea of hope actually evolves over time. So hope is incredible that way. It doesn't just stay uh, stagnant. What we're asking patients and families to do is to allow themselves the permission to toggle back and forth between hoping for the best and thinking about the what-if scenarios. And obviously, the what-if scenarios will change based on where you are at in your illness journey. Um, but you you have to keep repeating this. You can't just do this from the beginning and that's it. As things happen, you've got to repeat it. You've got to continue to ask for, paint that picture for me, doctor and nurse, of what it might look like if this treatment doesn't work or what are my options. And don't forget to invite other people in your family or your inner crew or the other people that need to be part of this conversation to participate in this idea of walking two roads because then you will be able to share the planning and the doing together. Thinking about the different personalities of various types of patients and families, are there times where some will walk two roads and some won't? Or does everyone have to walk two roads? Really, not everyone has to walk two roads, but someone who is in the inner circle. So a patient is usually surrounded by family members or neighbors or community members or 
besties, you know, there's a, there's a crew that is not a trained crew, but everyone has their crew. And it's really important for someone in the crew who takes a front seat position in the care journey is identified as someone who will walk two roads. We really can't change the way people are. If someone's been an ostrich their whole life and have dug their head in the sand, we're unlikely to change the way they are. However, we need to make sure that someone in the inner crew is willing and brave enough to walk two roads, which really means seeking realistic information that may or may not be shared with the rest of the crew, depending on what they want. But someone in that team has to know, has to be in the know, so that not everyone is going through this completely blindfolded. And what if someone doesn't want to know? How do you deal with that situation where one wants to know and the other doesn't? So we don't seek to change people, um, change their natural ways or change their personalities. So if I'm speaking to a patient and family and the patient really doesn't want to know anything but positive stuff, I might suggest that either I or the family at that point invite the person to know more about their illness and the future and important to invite them. But if they don't want to engage, we don't force people to engage. But then I might turn to the family and say, is anyone here interested in this idea of learning more about the illness so that you can be prepared if things don't go your way? What are the things that we can expect with this illness so that you and your family can best prepare? You know, I will say after years of being in practice, I probably go one step further. And more recently, I offer people what's the flip side of not knowing. And so I'm not forcing them to know the specifics about their illness if they don't want it. But I will tell them that the patients and families that I meet that are able to balance hoping for the best and seeking the truths and the reality about the illness do fare better over time, are able to be more proactive and feel less in a crisis and feel overall more grounded in their illness journey. And they may still say, well, I still don't want to know, but then at least I know I've given them the opportunity. Sammy, another question we often get is, are there times in the journey where walking two roads is more important to do? Or are we saying that someone should be walking two roads 50-50, like balancing hope and preparedness in equal amounts of time? There are times in the illness journey where it is important to walk two roads. Usually this is around major milestones in the illness. Basically, these are the major, let's say, turning points or transition points or key points along the illness journey where you may have to make a decision, either a decision about your care um, or a decision about your life or your family may have to make a decision. When you need to make a decision, walking two roads like I said, is extremely important and very protective because you want to make decisions that are based on full information. So you want to hope for the best at these transition points, but plan for, well, what if it doesn't go my way? Transition points can also be when you're crossing different care settings. So you want to walk two roads when you've been sent to the hospital or walk two roads if you've been 
into the emergency room. You want to hope for the best, but plan for, well, what if this doesn't go well? Or another transition point might be as you're getting further into the illness and you notice that you're having a physical change in your illness. So those points, you want to walk two roads. I hope I get better or I hope I get stronger. But if I don't, I hope I get more appetite. But if I don't. So again, there are just these moments where you would naturally want to walk two roads. And you don't always have to walk them equally. There are times where you're going to be on more of an optimistic slant. And there are other times where it's really important to bring in the what ifs. You'll learn to balance the two roads as you practice this early in your illness. So that by the time you're making even bigger and bigger and bigger decisions, you'll be pretty expert at it. What advice do we have? for our listeners, either to their family member or to themselves of how they can actually practice walking two roads or opening up this conversation with others? Like what, what are we asking them to actually do if they understand this and want to try it themselves? I guess we're asking them right off the get-go to realize that illnesses have different patterns, that There are some illnesses that right from the diagnosis, we know for a fact that those illnesses will change over time, which means they're progressive, and that eventually they will be life-limiting. The first thing is to know if your diagnosis falls into that category, because if it does, then absolutely you're going to know that I really do have to be able to walk two roads. And Walking two roads basically means that you're going to commit someone in your crew, if it's not the patient themselves, to always seek information about, well, what if? So in order to do that, because we know patients and nurses are uncomfortable with talking about that aspect of care, the second thing that has to happen is that you need to let your healthcare provider know you're the kind of person who wants to know the flip side, that you would like to tell them, walk two roads, which means I want to hope for the best, and I'm really hoping that this will work. But I want you to know, doctor and nurse, that I'm also the kind of person that feels way better if I also know what will happen if this doesn't go my way. Please paint that picture for me. I'll hope for the best, but I want to know so that I can plan for the worst. And then you plan for the worst. You plan for things going sideways and then continue to just hope for the best. But at least you've done your duties. You've walked two roads. Okay, I'd like to bring in a guest right now. Her name is Carrie, and she was a caregiver for her daughter, Olivia. And we thought she had a good story to exemplify the walk two roads key. So thank you for joining us today, Carrie. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Just for the listeners, can you tell us a little bit about your journey caring for Olivia? Um, Okay, so Olivia was diagnosed with brain cancer at um, just before her 16th birthday. And um, so right then and there, we just basically were in shock. And so I began to have to figure out 
what I was going to do to, you know, help my daughter get through this situation and myself and my family. And, and that's where it started. And, and today's episode is really about this idea of walking two roads where we hope for the best, but also know there's another road that has to plan for different outcomes. The what ifs, what if that treatment doesn't work? What if that surgery doesn't work? Does that idea resonate with you? And did it play out in your story with Olivia? It did. Um, when, you know, when you first get diagnosed, you basically don't know what's coming next. So you have to go through all the tests. You have to, you know, we, we were just bombarded. It was like, oh, my God, she had to have a brain biopsy. And then what was that going to tell us? And then you're just thrown in there and you just got to figure it out as things arise, really. And I was lucky enough that Olivia was at Sick Kids Hospital. And so we had, I would say, the most incredible care possible. Um, they were straight with us right from square one. Um, they basically told us, you know, what prognosis was. They made treatment plans for her. They, you know, listened to us, they directed us, they had all the support really that we needed there, which I've heard is much different when adults become ill with terminal illness. And so, you know, I basically just had to take charge. I had four kids. I, I, I had to think about Olivia and her needs. And I just, I think Olivia also set the stage for us and and we kind of followed her lead as well i think it helped me walk two roads i just felt like i had no choice i'm that kind of person like i personally like to always prepare for the worst and i was obviously hoping for some miracle and for something good to come out of it so yes i, I think i did walk both roads because i cared mostly about olivia's quality of life and making her happy for whatever time she had left on the planet looking back do you think olivia also walked two roads definitely she definitely did. She knew she was very aware of everything and nothing was kept from her. And even the doctors were, you know, straight with her. And, you know, we tried not to think about that aspect. And we just tried to have as much fun, love and affection and all the best of that we could during the time and and as she was declining she kept saying you know i don't want to live like this so she was very accepting like she as as things progressed and progressed it was like she handled it better than anyone she she didn't want to be here if her life was going to be in a wheelchair and the way she really walked the two roads was that she was so much still following her dream. She wanted to continue school. She wanted to do her work. She still was planning all her plans. She she got a boyfriend during the time. She, you know, was still going to school in a wheelchair. I had to transport her from the car to the wheelchair to that she took private classes. She was still gonna fulfill her dream to become a pediatrician. She was living each day 
like right to the end. We had teachers come to the house and she'd like be sitting in her chair, can't walk, but she'd still want to learn as much as she could. So she for sure walked the two roads. Some people ask us like to explain whether or not we think that people have to walk 50-50 road. Like, does it always have to be 50 hope, 50 planning for the worst? 50-50-50-50. Or can it sometimes be more hopeful and sometimes you're more in the planning and, you know. Definitely changes too. That changes along with the hope because, yeah, if you're, um, there's some times where you're like, oh, okay, yeah, maybe this is going to work or give us more time. And then you know, maybe it does. And then, then that comes to an end. And then, so yeah, there, it's never a 50, 50, you're always gonna waver. It's more like just a curve, like it's just like a roller coaster. Um, But I mean, it's not, it's not necessarily huge dips and valleys, but it definitely has, you know, ups and downs and ins and outs. Yeah. Carrie, one of the things we talk about in this episode is the idea that hope evolves. And so can you speak a little bit about your time with Olivia? Do you feel like what you're hoping for changed over time? Okay, so um, I think hope, uh, the hope at the beginning was that the treatments were going to work and that it was going to shrink the tumor and then maybe make it operable and, you know, over time when the treatment started, um, we basically um, waited for the results in that the treatment had done its job and that wasn't going to happen. Then, yes, we, we started to hope that, okay, maybe there would be something else that would come up. And if that wasn't going to happen, how were we going to, you know, get through the next stage of the illness and if it was to grow. And so, yes, we just kept hoping for different things. So when she um, started to decline, we just kept, you know, hoping that she was going to be okay with the comfort level and, and with the different medications and that she was still going to be able to have some quality of life and enjoy her time and, Carrie, it sounds like you never lost hope, but it wasn't in the form of cure. You were able to sort of like transition your hope to match where Olivia was at. Um, I just kept hoping that she would remain (laughs) wherever it was progressing. I just hoped she would just like stay in that spot for as long as possible, stay in that spot for as long as possible. And I mean, even in the end, when she was in a coma, I was just like, just stay, just stay with me, you know? But the longer that went on, actually, now that I think about it, it was like, no, that's that's no quality. She's lying there, you know? So, but when she was having fun with her friends still, and we were able to still go on a holiday and, you know, those... I guess, yeah, you just keep hoping that something is going to be helpful. And and we just, yeah, we just kept finding ways to continue to make her comfortable. Like the family coming every weekend to visit and 
you know, meals beside her and just, yeah, like every little thing, everything people did, everything, it wasn't so much that it gave us hope, but it was just so comforting, the love and support. And it was just, yeah, like all you could hope for in life is just the feeling of everyone together, just helping and being there and, and enjoying the moment. I guess we could really stay in the moment. That was just what was so wonderful. It allowed you to like just stay in the here and the now. In this episode, we talk about the key of walking two roads. But we also know that sometimes it happens that not everyone in your circle of care is able to walk two roads. And so I'm hoping that you can talk a little bit about what is the consequence of being able to do that and perhaps the consequences of not being able to walk two roads. For me, with the ability to be able to walk the two roads, I felt like my ability to really be there for Olivia and to help Olivia in every way remain really, like, to have the really close and loving relationship that we had together, that really was, um, was for me key with walking the two roads because it only drew us closer, closer, closer. Like we became inseparable, best friends, like just really counted on each other. And my husband could not accept um, that there was going to be an end and continued to search and look and spend all his time trying to find a cure or find a way to make her better, he really lost out on his relationship with Olivia. And um, it drove a a wedge between Olivia, between me, between everyone. And I feel like he really missed out. And and I feel sad for that. That was almost as challenging as everything else, having to deal with someone who couldn't um, see things from a different perspective. Can you imagine if both you and your husband were only walking the road of hoping for the best the whole time? Yeah, we would have missed out on so much. I, I would have missed out so much. I, I know I would have missed it on so much. And I, I feel because I walked the two roads that I haven't been left with any, you know, guilt or wishing I would have done this, that, or the other. Like, I really fully know that I did everything I could and I took such good care of my daughter. I, and she vocalized it to me. We talked about it. We were so open and real about everything. And I, I, I cherish that time I spent with her. Some people think that if they entertain the reality or the honesty of the illness, that it will make them depressed, sad, incapacitated. Was that your experience? There's something inside that once you accept that they're going to go and that you can't beat the illness, um, there's a fear inside that 
if you lose that hope that or accept like acknowledge that the person's gonna go will that make them go quicker so i think that plays on your mind and can make you depressed in a sense but i don't think that it stopped me from being able to do what i had to do but it did play in my mind that if i'm accepting this then it's going to make it happen faster or maybe it's my fault because i didn't hope harder or pray harder or you know yeah so how did you overcome that how did you counteract those thoughts i basically just it's like a snap your fingers kind of thing and i just told myself that i had to be real like the reality is this is what she has it's not in my power there's not it's nothing i can do or can't do it's just really bad luck and i have to make the best of this and snap myself out of it and it's not my fault i just had to keep reassuring myself that if it's going to happen it's going to happen it sounds like the real information grounded you and almost gave you power. Yes, it did. It made it helped me know what I had to do. And it made me really appreciate every single second of every single day with her. Carrie, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Of course, my pleasure. I don't know. I I hope I got it out there because I'd love to be able to also mm-hmm. help others in mm-hmm. their journey. And if this makes a difference, then that's great. To summarize, walking two roads means that you can hope for the best, but also be prepared for different outcomes. Sammy, what are the other take-home messages from this episode? That in order to be prepared, you need to seek out factual, truthful, realistic, brave information about what is the natural way this illness is going to unfold. So walking two roads means that the road of planning and being prepared by seeking factual, truthful information does not betray hope. That hope can exist along the whole illness journey simultaneously while you plan and prepare. You don't have to give up hope to plan. Hope will ride along with the planning as long as it's based in reality. So seek out the truth and factual information. The other take home is that we want you to toggle back and forth between the road of hope and preparing for different outcomes, but you don't have to spend equal time on both. Don't dwell on the what ifs. Let your mind wander there, make some plans, but then you can go back to hoping for the best. So it is not a 50-50, it's knowing that the other exists and in using it at the right times. Sammy, what's the last take home? So it may not be someone's natural style to, you know, go down that other road. Um, and so some people just naturally won't go there. They say, oh, I just want to hope for the best. So this other main point is really about identifying someone in your crew or your team your informal team, your people, who's willing to walk two roads. Not everyone has to do it who's in the crew, 
But someone needs to be able to do it. Someone needs to be in the know so that the whole crew is not blindsided. Join us next episode when we talk about the next key, which is called Zoom Out, which will allow you to understand the big picture of your illness. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketza. The podcast is edited and produced by me, Sien Xiao, and Kayla McMillan. Special thanks to Krista Honstra, Principal of Clarity Hub. For more information, visit us at waitingroomrevolution.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and help us get the word out.